Hey friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 37 of the Popecast, the podcast about popes for history buffs who don't have the time nor the interest to pick up dry, dusty history books. Our episode this week is an interview I did with John DeRosa of the Classical Theism Podcast, a show that's all about defending Catholic Christian ideas in conversation with all sorts of excellent guests, the likes of Trent Horn, Dr. Ed Fazer, Jimmy Aiken, Gomer from Catching Foxes, and somehow, yours truly. I'm uh, grateful to John for having had me on the show to talk about, in particular, common objections about papal infallibility. So on this show, uh, we chat about the stories of Pope Honorius I and Pope Liberius, along with uh, lots of uh, other great stuff. One last thing before we get going here, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends at Catholic Balm Co. For those who um, maybe haven't heard of them, their beard balm has been a personal favorite of mine ever since uh, I grew a beard uh, several years back. And since we're talking about two bearded popes today in particular, it seemed appropriate to mention here. So be sure to check out their beard balms, beard oil for guys, lip balm, and lotion lotion bars for the ladies, and especially brand, brand new, their brand new line of Petra Solid Cologne. So you can see why we'd be a fan. So just go to catholicbalm.co, that's catholicbalm.co, and then be sure to enter the word Pope, P-O-P-E, at checkout to get 10% off your order. So that's catholicbalm.co and the word Pope at checkout. Okay, so here's our interview with John DeRosa of the Classical Theism Podcast. Enjoy. Matthew Sewell, welcome to the Classical Theism Podcast. Yeah, thanks, John. I appreciate you having me on. So tell us, when did you first become interested in learning about popes? Give us some highlights of your story. Yeah. Uh, so I think it probably it was in uh, seed form probably around, I don't know, six, seven years ago, something like that. So I uh, have been a cradle Catholic my whole life, like the standard you know, Catholic upbringing. Mom was the youth minister. My dad was the Knights of Columbus, cooking all the pancake breakfast, all those sorts of things, and um, went to a Catholic college and all this sort of thing, um, but didn't really kind of come into my f- my own faith that wasn't the faith of my family or something like really kind of woke up to, uh, oh, Lord, you're real. And oh, the church is like a real thing. And uh, until I went to uh, the the Sikh conference, Focus's Sikh conference in, in 2013, and at Adoration had a really powerful encounter, um, was uh, really moved by a couple of the talks there. And kind of out of that just sort of became a giant Catholic nerd for uh, all things, you know, I just was starting to consume, you know, I think Matt Frad was one of the talks recommended reading Orthodoxy and Mere Christianity. Um, Catholic Answers had sponsored the conference. And so I started, you know, binge listening to all of their podcasts and all that sort of thing. Uh, and it's 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 changed over the years, kind of my, my zeal or, or where I uh, am most passionate about. But um, kind of this love for the the church and church history was kind of where that, that started from. And then in my work at Flocknote uh, about four years ago, we, uh, in our early days, uh, our founder, Matt Warner, had done a um, a catechism in a year daily email series and a gospels in a year daily email series. And uh, the gospels in a year was going away, and we needed a new email series to, that was kind of brand new, original content. And uh, I had been receiving this this daily email, uh, secular one, that uh, called The Skim, which is kind of a daily digest of, of news and, and things like that. And... Um, as we were kind of thinking through these, I'm like, I, there's about, you know, enough popes to last every weekday throughout the whole year. Let's do uh, papal bios, little short two minute something uh, papal bios that 
uh, people can digest in, in not very long over their morning coffee or whatever and make them entertaining because most um, you know, church history books are pretty dry and pretty boring. And so uh, so that was what we did. And so for every day for a year, I uh, wrote an entry from Peter to Francis um, and learned about the popes. And so it was kind of this really random niche sort of thing. And so it's in its fourth iteration now, All the mostly the same content. Um, the popes in the year is, but then about a year and a half ago, I guess, um, had this idea. It was always, you know, you could only put so much into a, a daily email that, that wasn't really, really long. Uh, and so I was like, oh, there's all this other really cool stuff. And I think I could do a podcast about this. And so uh, thus the Popecast was born. And now we're, I think, 34 episodes in. This would be 35 since we're posting um, on the Popecast as well. But um, yeah, so the rest is kind of history. Fantastic. Well, I have to say it's so awesome to hear uh, you describe yourself as a Catholic nerd because we need those people who are doing that research. And, you know, if you're not a nerd about this stuff, if you're not like super into it, who's going to read up on 360 something papal bios? So we're so happy you did that. I'm going to highly recommend the Popecast to people because I've listened to a bunch of your episodes and really enjoyed them. We'll have a chance to talk about that more at the end. Uh, but today we're going to examine a couple historical issues about the papacy. So I called this episode Answering Papal Problems. And we're, this might even be part one, Matthew, and I'd love to have you back to tackle more because there's a lot of historical episodes that people point to and they say, hey, you know, the Catholic Church, you say all this stuff about the Pope, but, you know, what about this guy when he said this? Or what about this guy? Today, we're going to look at two guys. We're going to focus on Pope Liberius and Pope Honorius. Uh, but before we get to them, let's clear up some misconceptions. So can you just give us an overview as to what the Catholic Church teaches about the papacy? Yeah, definitely. So uh, kind of in a nutshell, the the doctrine of the papacy, or however you want to characterize that, comes from the 16th chapter of Matthew, right, where Jesus uh, asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And he said, you know, you're Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, uh, you—gosh, uh, I, I always joke I'm Catholic, so I don't know Scripture. I'm just kidding. Um, no, so he says, <laughs> he says back to Jesus, uh, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's that's the papacy in a nutshell. So uh, he says right after that, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And uh, with that, he's alluding to this you know, this concept in the ancient world, the position of the chief steward. So there was a, in, you know, all ancient Egypt, like all these ancient kingdoms, there was a chief steward who was literally the keeper of the keys, uh, or if I guess figuratively, the keeper of the keys. So he would be in charge of all of the estates of the church, uh, feeding the people as it were. And so he was, he was uh, speaking with the voice of the king, protecting what the king owned. And so that's, that's what the papacy is, right? So uh, another interesting uh, snippet, I remember, I think it was Father Mike Schmitz who, uh, who kind of broke this down uh, in a homily one time that when Jesus called him Peter, it was really strange because Peter wasn't a name. Peter was literally the word for rock in any of the translations, rock. Um, so it was like, uh, I proclaim you chair and on you I will sit kind of thing was I think the analogy that he gave. So so it's really striking what Jesus says to Peter. He's, he's making this really bold statement and then we can see all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the, the Acts of the Apostles, um, Peter is always addressed first in Scripture, and Jesus will speak directly to him. So in terms of the papacy and why we consider Peter the first pope, the, the head of the church, this visible head of a visible body of Christ uh, that is you know, in union with itself, 
uh, that's where we where we go to. And so related to that, you, it, it, I guess this part's kind of somewhat controversial depending on which circle you find yourself discussing it in. But uh, papal supremacy is is related to that. So as uh, as the church has taken its various doctrines and dogmas from kind of seed form and blossomed it into the oak tree, um, it's uh, the Pope is kind of the, has become like the supreme head of the church. So he kind of has the last say in any sort of matter of, of dispute within the church. And what's really cool about that is we actually see a ton of the church fathers in the first centuries of the church echoing that unity that's embodied by the Pope of Rome. So uh, if it's okay, I'll just use one example for uh, for the sake of time, even though there's a ton of them. I think Catholic Answers has a really good um, whole list of all the church fathers. But St. Cyprian of Carthage, writing in 251, so barely two centuries after Christ uh, walked the earth, St. Cyprian wrote, Although he assigns a like power to all the apostles, yet he founded a single chair. And he established by his own authority a source and an intrinsic reason for that unity. Indeed, the others were that also what Peter was, mainly they were all apostles, but a primacy is given to Peter, whereby it is made clear that there is but one church and one chair. So too, all the apostles are shepherds and the flock is shown to be one, fed by all the apostles in single-minded accord. If someone does not hold fast to this unity of Peter, can he imagine that he still holds the faith? If he should desert the chair of Peter upon whom the church was built, can he still be confident that he is in the church? Uh, end quote. So just uh, still a point of dispute in Catholic and Orthodox discussions, of course, but in terms of just how much power maybe the Pope possesses over the various uh, local churches or dioceses throughout the world. But in my estimation, uh, the church fathers are pretty clear that Peter is the sole rock, that that main point of unity. And there's any number of examples throughout the early church on discipline and, and doctrine alike where everyone— understood that concept. So that's supremacy. The next thing would be um, the charism of infallibility that the church teaches that the, the Pope possesses. I was just going to go to that next. I was just going to go to that next because that was a nice layout of the, you know, Matthew 16 passage, papal primacy, discussing supremacy, you're quoting Cyprian. I'll put, and I forgot to mention this, I'll have all the, the quotes, links that you mentioned, anything, I'll throw that up in the show notes page for the listeners. But yeah, th- this is the big one where there's a lot of misconceptions. What about papal infallibility? Yeah, totally. So obviously uh, much uh, misunderstood, so I'll, I'll talk about impeccability right after this, the the distinction between the two. But infallibility, of course, really only refers to specific and distinct situations as charism. That's when the Pope is teaching on matters of faith and morals, and only when he's teaching uh, what's called ex cathedra, literally in Latin, from the chair. So it's, it's pretty much only when the Pope is saying, hey guys, I'm using my office of the Pope to tell you something about faith and morals. If the Pope is not doing that, he's not speaking ex cathedra. <laughs> and in that situation, when he does do that, which I think Bishop Barron, I, I, heard, I heard him quote, he's like, it's happened precisely twice. Uh, other than that, I mean, he's, he's protected by the Holy Spirit from teaching error in those instances. And no pope definitively in the history of the church has taught error when exercising his his papal office. So um, now I mentioned that, that that leads us to another common misconception, maybe conflation is infallibility versus impeccability, which means that, you know, people think that popes are supposed to be somehow sinless, which I'm tempted to laugh at that suggestion. You probably are too, because you've heard the the stories of good and bad popes alike, that if there's one thing that a bunch of popes have not been, it's sinless, right? So uh, the church makes no stipulation that that the pope is going to be without sin. Um, she makes, uh, well, I mean, gosh, in a lot of ways, the first pope was the worst pope. He was the guy who denied Jesus 
uh, at the foot of the cross. I mean, it pales in comparison to anything any other pope could ever have done. So, uh, yeah. So that's kind of three myths: the, the papal supremacy or the three uh, points: papal supremacy, infallibility, and then the uh, that the pope is not impeccable and can have his own opinions uh, and still be pope. Definitely. All right. Well, very good. That sets us up nicely for this discussion because based on you know some of the teachings about the papacy non-Catholics, particularly non-Catholic Christians, have pointed to various historical episodes to disprove what the Church teaches about the papacy. They say, hey, you teach this about the papacy, but what about this? One of those episodes involves Pope Liberius. So before we talk about how to answer the issue, can you just tell us who was he, who was Pope Liberius, and what's the relevant history surrounding his time as Bishop of Rome? Yeah, poor Liberius. Gosh, um, I always kind of chuckle. The, the poor guy. So he was Pope number 36, elected in 352 AD. And for starters, he's, believe it or not, the very first pope in the history of the church to not be a saint. 35 before him and 13 after him. <laughs> so the only one out of the first 49 popes, the first 500 years of Christendom, to not be a saint. Now, the church, of course, is operating now above ground when he was uh, when he was elected, but the big controversy at that time had been raging for a while was uh, Arianism, the heresy of Arianism, uh, which more or less was the teaching that Christ was just a mere man, not a divine person. It had been treated at the Council of Nicaea, uh, I guess it was uh, 25, 27 years before that, but the emperor at the time, Constantius, was a was a huge Arian and absolutely hated anybody who still adhered to that orthodox belief. And so in that time, as far as the major players, though, beyond that were the Pope, obviously, Liberius, and then the great St. Athanasius, and St. Jerome was also uh, was also working at that time and, and writing. Now, Constantius's punishment of choice, uh, we all know that Roman emperors have a wide variety of various uh, pet punishments, but his punishment of choice was exile, which he used pretty liberally for years, and, and Liberius himself was exiled before too long. And after the uh, after the uh, emperor first attempted to win him over with some bribes, and that didn't work, and um, he, I think Liberius uh, was a, a eunuch who had, the emperor had sent to like bring all of these lavish gifts and things to the Lateran Basilica, and he not only like you know chased him out probably with like a firebrand or something, but then when when he later found that the gifts were still like sitting in a quarter of the basilica, he like yelled at his own servants for like why would you sully this this basilica with with uh, with such you know spurned treasure or whatever. But anyways, so that didn't work, obviously. And then uh, Constantius had the pope dragged before his court in Milan, where he demanded that the pope condemn Athanasius and the canons of the Council of Nicaea and kind of come over to his side. Right? He demanded this of the, of the pope, and he, of course, refused. And what is really cool about this, gosh, this was 17, almost 1,700 years ago. Their exchange actually still survives to this day. Is it okay to read that? Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's relatively short. So uh, Constantius, you know, we can imagine the showdown and somebody like is cowering in the corner writing on their little papyrus or whatever. But Constantius said, you alone hold out against the judgment of the whole world. He has injured all and me above all. Not content with the murder of my eldest brother, he set Constance, the previous emperor, uh, who Constantius had killed, also against me, he being the pope. I should prize a victory over him more than one over Sylvanus or Magnentius. And those are the two guys who had tried to overthrow the emperor. So he's saying a victory over the pope and over St. Athanasius would be greater than the guys who are literally trying to take his own life. Liberia says in response, do not employ bishops whose hands are meant to bless to revenge your own enmity. Have the bishops restored, and if they agree with the Nicene faith, let them consult as to the peace of the world, that an innocent man not be condemned. Constantius says back, 
I am willing to send you back to Rome if you will join the communion of the church, meaning Arianism. Make peace and sign the condemnation. Liberius says, uh, with a note of finality, I have already bidden farewell at Rome to the brethren. The laws of the church are more important than residence in Rome. So after that exchange, Liberius was exiled to uh, Thrace for the next two years. He was you know, harassed and tortured by the emperor's men, trying to get him to relent. And then Liberius returned to Rome. I think in 357, uh, after Constantius had tried to put a patsy on the throne, an anti-pope Felix, uh, and tried to get the Roman people to agree to him, and they were like, "Yeah, yeah, right, buddy." Like chased him out of the city, and and Constantius was, you know, his his uh, his influence was over at that point. But Liberius returned to Rome. Um, Saint Jerome said he returned as a conqueror to a to a hero's welcome. And he finished his papacy in relative calm, I think, uh, died four or five years later. So that's kind of the uh, Liberius in a nutshell. Now, that's so interesting because from what you said, it almost sounds like he he really did uh, return as a hero and ended up in a good way. But I've heard people claim like that he signed an Arian creed, that he, you know, that he did uh, not believe in the orthodoxy that you, that you were describing. So why don't the actions of Liberius disprove Catholic claims about the papacy. Talk more about that. Yeah, you and you uh, alluded to it right there. So where the infallibility question comes into play is what is with what Liberius did or did not do when he was in exile. So some say that he caved to the emperor's demands and others say he stood firm throughout. And what's actually most intriguing is that St. Athanasius and St. Jerome, two of the greatest saints of the church, themselves are among the people who say that Liberius caved. They were the one, some of the ones who said. So I mean, that's what kind of why why I guess it kind of held so much weight. But it turns out that, that both of them happened to be also on the run from the authorities as well, and so odds are pretty good that they actually were hearing things like third or fourth hand. So again, uh, not uh, they weren't popes, but speaking back to the impeccability issue, saints are also sinners, or saints can be wrong too. Uh, so Saint Jerome and Saint Athanasius probably got it wrong. Thanks be to God. There's also then the fact that a confession under torture, which would have been uh, the the circumstances in which Liberius would have relented, confession under torture is hardly legitimate, right? So just as a marriage in the church uh, between two people isn't valid unless the parties are both entering into it freely, a statement of belief that that carries this much weight shouldn't shouldn't be considered valid unless unless it's also spoken freely. So I think of uh, Saint Joan of Arc's story is similar in that regard. Uh, so she was, you know browbeaten for days and weeks and weeks and, you know, in like impossible heat or whatever it was by the English bishops. And then she finally, you know, signed saying, I lied, I'm a heretic or whatever. And she was burned at the stake. But then 25 years later, the Pope exonerated her and said, like, this is a bunch of BS. <laughs> and uh, because she was, you know, uh, she relented under, under torture. So then lastly, looking at the end of like end of Liberius's life, that probably should be proof enough, too. So he was given a hero's welcome in Rome. And if there's anything we know about the Roman people back then, it's they weren't about to have the wool pulled over their eyes, and they were kind of a gossipy people. It seems like word would travel kind of fast, uh, for better or for worse. And so, I mean, they you know they would uh, seem to descend into a mob pretty quickly um, if they were passionate about something. And so, I mean, if that's hardly something that the, the hero's welcome is hardly something they would have given Liberius if word had spread that he had apostatized, and he was uh, he was actually to boot known as a vigorous defender of orthodoxy and a, a fighter against Arianism until the end of his life. All right. I think, th I think that's a nice summary of, of some points we can use to answer this. I'm just taking some notes here. But the question really comes down to, you know, did he cave while he was in exile? And some people say he did. Some people say he didn't. Uh, and he was given a hero's welcome when he returned. So that's some evidence that he didn't. But I like your other point, too, that, you know, maybe even if he confessed something under torture, you know, signing one thing 
a document under torture is not the same as, you know, teaching something authoritatively on faith and morals to be held definitively by the whole church. Right. And so I, I don't think, you, as you pointed out earlier with the ex-cathedra description, um, it doesn't seem like any of that enters into play. Would you agree with that? Right. Yeah, totally. I mean, you, and you can look at like the motives of, of the circumstances where he was and all that sort of thing. It's like the emperor had an ulterior motive to try to get the pope to bend to his will. Uh, and whether or not that was the case, I mean, it was hardly a fair fight. So I think, yeah, all of the other, I think even like in Orthodoxy and even in the, well, the Lutherans wouldn't hold up a pope as a saint. But I think like in um, in Orthodoxy, he's considered Saint Liberius, actually. So, I mean, he's, he's even considered a saint in some creeds. Um, but I think all of the other uh, all of the other um, proof surrounding his whole life, his works and his deeds and all that sort of thing, vigorously defending until he was actually kicked out of Rome bodily, I think we can give him the benefit of the doubt. All right, very good. So let's let's turn to the next issue then. So this one might be uh, a bit tougher because I don't think it involves torture, but this is Pope Honorius. So who was he? And give us some of the relevant history surrounding his time as Bishop of Rome. Yeah, so Honorius, uh, Pope Honorius I, to be specific, since there's actually been four of them. He's actually, he's another great story. So here's a guy who was actually condemned by an ecumenical council of the church. Now, to start, before I, I get too far into it, of course, there's, there's a, a big giant asterisk next to the word condemned, but we'll cover that more in a minute. Um, so Honorius was Pope number 70, and he was elected in uh, 625, just about 20 years after the death of, of St. Gregory the Great. And the first nine or so years of his papacy were pretty uneventful, but all that time, uh, the heresy of monothelitism or, or monothelitism, I'm not actually even sure the, the proper pronunciation, had been uh, brewing in the East. That was the belief that Christ had just one will, that being the divine will. So the Patriarch of Constantinople, meanwhile, Sergius, had been trying to still reconcile a similar heresy from like 200 years before. It was monophysitism, the belief that, that Christ had just one nature. So uh, he was trying to reconcile that with Orthodox belief, again, despite it being condemned like 200 years beforehand in 451 of the Council of Chalcedon. Now, of course, that just produced a new heresy. Anytime you try to steer away or try to, you know, cater an Orthodox belief to something to make it more palatable or more less mysterious, um, you just get another heresy. So Sergius wanted to wanted things his way, and he was actually more of a more of a political mind than a theological mind, right? Keep that in mind. Uh, so he capitalized on the fact that the news hadn't yet spread all the way to Rome, and I think he was probably uh, you know taking on some heat. And he wrote the Pope a letter to get uh, the Pope's stamp of approval. The letter, though, had deliberately confusing and misleading language. It used the term operation instead of will, and it it actually set up a false dichotomy. And so that uh, the dichotomy was that either Christ had one operation or had two conflicting operations, two uh, conflicting wills, and then as a smokescreen. Uh, meanwhile, this was presented alongside, you know, Sergius regaling Honorius with tales about how he'd been reconciling a ton of heretics back into communion with the church through his supposedly uh, tiresome efforts. And effectively, Sergius was driving at this idea that the teaching the two wills of Christ would lead people to believe that the human will was in opposition to the Father's will. So the only two things could be opposed to one another, and that it was impossible then for, uh, since it was impossible for God to be opposed to God. That's technically true. You know, if the human will is is fallen and, and the Father's will is perfect, those can't be in opposition to one another if they're both meeting in the person of Christ. So Honorius wrote back to Sergius, though, basically saying that it's best to avoid both ways 
of phrasing things, one operation or two operations. And then that was kind of the end of it. So uh, keep in mind, Honorius had been in office about a decade and he died a couple of years later. Uh, but history hadn't, of course, heard the last of him, as, as many of us likely well know. So in 680, at the Sixth Council of Constantinople, decades after his death, among those condemnations of the council of the heresy of monothelitism was Honorius himself. The, and it's the only time in history in the history of the church that a pope has appeared on the condemnations of an ecumenical council. And the now the council fathers were unequivocal in their condemnation of Honorius. And this kind of fell at an interesting time. So Pope Saint Agatho uh, was the pope when it started, and um, I think had kind of automatically approved the decrees of the council beforehand, sent some legates to say, yeah, okay, whatever. Little did they know, Agatho died before the council was finished, but of course they didn't know that he died. So they didn't know that you know his permission was moot. So they had to send those back to Rome uh, where Pope St. Leo II was now on the throne. And when the decrees were sent to him to be confirmed, he, he read through them and modified the language to only condemn Honorius's inaction for not doing more to prevent the heresy spreading. So he didn't condemn himself, condemn Honorius as a person. He actually said Honorius just did not, as became the apostolic authority, extinguish the flame of heretical teaching in its first beginning, but fostered it by his negligence. So, yeah, that's uh, that's Pope Honorius the first. Another kind of sad Wait, the, character. The last one, I just want to catch that citation that you were reading. That was the opinion of Pope Agatho. When he was commenting, so that, on that was Leo the Second. Actually, oh, sorry, that he was said, Leo the Second. Yeah, he wrote in a letter, I think, to the Spanish bishops, um, and I can, yeah, I can send you that afterwards. That's and what time around? What time period was he writing that? Do you know? So it was uh, around six eighty was when this. Uh, oh, okay. So council. that was well, right around when the council was. So I know the council because that's actually really important. So the council fathers were unequivocal in their condemnation, but the the I really like that clarification that um, Pope Leo the Second makes that it was really the in action that he you know wasn't clear enough in condemning the heresy i think that's going to help us answer the second question because mm -hmm. i'm going to tell you if a council is condemning a pope if he's writing these things that are heretical why don't his actions constitute a disproof of catholic claims to the papacy yeah exactly yeah and it's pretty straightforward i mean in that sense so honorius's answer to sergius didn't decide the question did not authoritatively declare the faith of the Roman Church or what it should be or what it is. It didn't, and it definitely didn't claim to speak with the voice of Peter in that sense. It, it uh, as I think it was in um, the Catholic Encyclopedia where they said it condemned, it condemned nothing, it defined nothing. So that's our key when it comes to the point of whether or not Honorius officially taught heresy. The Pope clearly wasn't defining or condemning anything, and as a result, it's impossible for his statement to be considered an, an ex-cathedra utterance. So he definitely could have done more. Uh, I guess we could just say Honorius didn't know. He didn't actually take the time to investigate or establish a commission or whatever to investigate and say, okay, let's really dial this down. It thankfully did get worked out, as we can see in, with the council, but um, – in any case, Honorius is no heretic. <laughs> okay. No, that is helpful. I like that phrase that, so he condemned nothing, he defined nothing, and so it's it, we can hardly take such a thing as invoking the charism of infallibility if he didn't even do any of those things. Mm -hmm. um, just a speculative question, just to throw it out there. Let's say, you know, Honorius, say someone had a diff different interpretation of the letter, and, you know, let's say they did think, they were pretty convinced that he... That Honorius personally was writing the Sergius, and in this letter said that he thought, you know, Christ only had one will. I'm sorry, thought, yeah, thought that Christ only had one will. Um, 
What do you think? Would that have ramifications for the papacy? Would that be an issue? Or just because it's, my thought is just hearing you describe it. If this is just a letter from a pope to Sergius, if it's not meant to go out to the whole church as a teaching, like as, you know, pretty authoritative, I almost think even if he did say clearly, you know, hey, Sergius, I think he has one will, but it's just a letter to Sergius and he's not promulgating it. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I'm, I'm kind of speculating here. Yeah, no, I I love I love kind of thinking through those questions for sure. Um, because on the one hand, I and you know it might be a gift from the Lord. Um, I'm sure that it is in some form, but I don't tend to. I mean, I know that there's a lot of social media arguments, like lots of people like spending lots of ink on wringing their hands over whether or not Pope Francis is a heretic or the Church is a true church or like whatever. Uh, I don't tend to worry a whole lot. I'm like, you know, Jesus said. The church is the church, and considering some of the popes that we've had throughout history, I'm not really that concerned. Like I, I understand that there's the potential for scandal, and there's you know God knows how many people, um, kind of pulling different strings in the Vatican to pad their own pockets or whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, a pope like we were talking about earlier, a pope is able to have his own personal opinions, um, so long as he doesn't try to, you know, proclaim the ex catheter. But I uh, am you know, confident that should that happen, I remember there was like this kind of cheesy uh, animation video of like, what is papal infallibility? It was like this kind of like choppy animation where like the Pope was writing two plus two equals five. And right before he signed his name, like a, a lightning bolt came down and killed him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I mean, you know, I have confidence that, that the Lord will, will protect his church as he's done already. I mean, some of the characters, Maybe on a future show we could talk about Benedict the Ninth, who was Pope three different times, or um, Alexander the Sixth, who was having orgies in the Lateran Basilica, or I mean, whatever. If those guys didn't try to subvert the the t- actual teachings of the Church, um, if Napoleon couldn't take over the Church, you know, like as one of the cardinals said, if uh, you're going to try to do what 17 centuries of cardinals have failed to do. Um, if that hasn't happened yet, I'm I'm pretty okay. So I mean, you know, to, I guess to answer your question directly, um, I think that would be okay so long as he's not saying I, with you know, the full power of uh, the the chair of of Peter on the matters of the belief in the nature of Christ or whatever. And if anybody doesn't believe this, let him be anathema. I think if that happened, then we would have a sh- a sure sign that whoever that guy was, he was no longer the Pope and the church is to be found elsewhere, um, which, you know, you can see in the, I guess, the arguments of some state of a contest or whatever, but that's kind of down a rabbit hole that um, is outside the scope of this episode. But uh, yeah, does that help? Is that? Yeah, no, I think that, I think we're, we're kind of in agreement on that. uh, For the most part, it sounds like I, I was just more focused on the Honorius issue. And I think even if he said it in a private letter um, that, you know, he had this personal belief that was incorrect, I don't think it would disprove the charism of infallibility that when the Pope does intend to teach something for the whole church, um, that that would be protected from error, that negative catechism. So I think that's good. I was going to ask you, you already gave us a nice little teaser. Who are some more Popes and papal issues that deserve attention? If you could just give that recap again. And then just one more time, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. I want to know, who are those Popes that we need to look at in the future? And where can listeners go to find out more about your work? Yeah, totally. So for other popes who are interesting to learn about, um, I, and I actually did a, a infallibility series a while back that was three, Honorius, uh, Liberius, and then Pope Vigilius is kind of the other third one who's commonly mentioned. Uh, pope John Twenty Second 
is another one. And I know you and I talked about this before we started recording, but um, he's kind of an interesting character because he uh, tried to, you know, he believed something about the beatific vision that ended up being false and then recanted before he died. Um, Vigilius, I think, was one, if I'm remembering correctly, who was an anti-pope before he was a real pope. And he believed something that was heretical before he was actually the true pontiff. And then for whatever reason, there's no record at all after he became the true pope of him ever teaching that you know, heretical belief ever again. So it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, and then so, I mean, that's like in terms of the, the doctrine side of things, if we want to get into like the debaucherous bad popes, Alexander the sixth, Benedict the uh, ninth, the most recent or the sec. Let's see the most recent episode of the Popecast. Yeah. Leo the 10th. Um, so all those Renaissance popes who, you know, had many mistresses and, <laughs> um, but still interestingly enough, like Leo the 10th, for example, it's just, he's just kind of boggles the mind. Cause, uh, even like even Luther who, you know, had every reason to hate him, complimented him for his personal conduct and how he actually lived a chaste life. Like he never had any concubines or anything like that, but he still like was just this lavish, like complete buffoon. Uh, spent the money of three papacies is what people said. So anyways, I could talk for days, obviously, about this. So so those are some just maybe some teasers. But um, where you can find me, uh, the Popecast is at thepopecast.fm is our website. So there you can obviously find all the past episodes, uh, links to where you can listen on your favorite podcast player, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever. Uh, and there's also a link to become a patron if you want to support the the podcast, get a free podcast sticker. Uh, and then also between episodes, which come about every two weeks or so, uh, I'm always posting great quotes from from any from lots of different popes and old uh, pictures of the papacy. So today was uh, Paul the Sixth and John Paul the Second is a cardinal. Uh, so all those are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at at the Popecast. Mm-hmm.